Listen to this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that brings freedom. The picture was becoming clear to the Pharisees that Jesus had gained a following much larger than that of John the Baptist. Jesus could see that the Pharisees were beginning to plot against him. This is because his disciples were busy ritually cleansing many new disciples through baptism. He chose to leave Judea and return to a safer location in Galilee. This is a trip that would take them through Samaria. In a small Samaritan town known as Sikar, Jesus and his entourage stopped to rest at the historic well that Jacob gave his son Joseph. It was about noon when Jesus found a spot to sit close to the well while the disciples ventured off to find provisions. From his vantage, he watched as a Samaritan woman approached to draw some water. Unexpectedly, he spoke to her. Woman, will you draw water from this well and give me a drink? I cannot believe that you, a Jew, would associate with me, a Samaritan woman, much less ask me to give you a drink. If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would ask me for a drink. You would ask for water that I could provide that would be living water. Sir, you sit by this deep well, a thirsty man, without a bucket in sight. Where does this living water come from? Are you claiming you're a better man than our father Jacob, who labored long and hard to dig and maintain this well so that he could share clean water with his sons, grandchildren, and livestock? Drink from this water, and your thirst will only be quenched for a brief time. You must return to this well over and over again. The water that I offer will serve as a wellspring within you and last for eternity. You will not thirst again. Please, sir, give me some of this water so I'll never be thirsty and never again have to make a trip to this well. Bring your husband to me. I have no husband. Nicely put, for you speak the truth. For in fact, you've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Oh, so you're a prophet? Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain. But you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here or at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You will worship what you don't know while we worship what we do know, for God's salvation is coming through the Jews. But the time is coming, it has in fact come, when... What you're called will not matter, and what you go or where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in pursuit of the truth, and that is the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simple and honest themselves before Him in their worship, God is sheer being in itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming. When he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am he. You do not have to look any further or look and wait any longer. The story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. 
Yes, definitely clap for for Evan uh, for Devin Renz and Jenna Crocker. They had no idea that when they got up this morning that I was going to make them do that. And I'm not comparing to the two people that did it at 9:30, but y'all are better. Um, okay, so this morning I want to start off by talking to you a little bit about the trip Stacy and I got to take this summer. We got to go um, in June. We spent most of our June in Israel. It was a real blessing. Uh, for my wife and I to go there, and we went under the leadership of uh, Rabbi Scott Hare, who's the uh, lead pastor out at Riverside, and then our very own, I don't know where he went, Ryan Jacobson, he's in the back, uh, co-led that trip, and uh, we learned and hiked so much. Um, It was incredible, a life-changing event. I highly recommend it if you ever get the opportunity to go. Um, we do have trips from this church uh, repeatedly throughout the year. So if that's something you're interested in, you can talk to Ryan. I'm going to put some pictures up in the back um, while I talk about this, because what I want to talk to you about is something I learned. And I want to point out real quick this backpack. This is Scott right here in the red and this backpack that he's wearing. It's a camelback, and we all were issued this camelback backpack. Um, if you don't know what a camelback is, it has a, a bladder built into the backpack that holds water and a little straw that comes out so you can constantly hydrate. And when you're prepping for this trip, they scare the living daylight out of you about how you're going to dehydrate if you don't drink all the time. And you're kind of like, okay, whatever, I know I have to drink um, water. And, and so you, you kind of prepare for that. But i got to tell you that when Stacy and I got on the bus the first morning... We didn't really have any idea what to expect, and we knew we were going to be away from the bus for a long time. We would usually hike from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., so 12 hours out in this desert, um, very arid, very hot, very dry. Um, And so that first day, our backpacks were like MacGyver. I mean, we had everything that you could possibly plan for was in my backpack. We had extra clothes. We We did have the water in there. We had first aid kits, we had tools, we had our Bibles, we had our field manuals, maps, you name it, it was in there. Carry that stuff around the desert for a couple of days and realize how much you're not using anything but the water, and it all starts to come out of your backpack. And our packs got all kinds of room in them so that we could fit more water, because they were right in trying to scare us. If you don't have water out here for 12 hours, you die. You will die. This is a very, very hot and dry place. You have to hydrate all the time. We even had all those warnings and all the water we carried. We still had some people get uh, really sick because of dehydration. So you learn that water in the desert is a matter of life and death. And it's not to say those other things that we had in our backpack the first day, first couple of days, that those weren't good tools. They just weren't helpful in this situation. In the context of the desert, they weren't useful. The only thing that mattered was water and like the occasional protein bar. Um, And that's probably one of the things that I wrestled with most um, when I was in Israel was this concept of what gives life. And am I making my decisions, my choices, based on what brings life rather than other distinctions? Sometimes there are things like what's right or wrong, what's good or evil, what's righteous or unrighteous. And much like those other things in my backpack, it's not that those distinctions are bad. 
It's just that in the context, they're not useful. And I think if we look at the story of God, and in particular this story this morning from John 4, what we see Jesus doing is saying when relationship is what hangs in the balance, those other distinctions aren't useful. Take them out of your backpack. You won't need them. What you need are are the distinction between life and death. When relationship is on the line, we should be making our choices based on what brings life. So I want you to stay in that tension right now about how do we know life and death versus right or wrong, that kind of thing. As we take a look at this story this morning, I need to underline to you that Jesus, the disciples, the Samaritan woman, they're, they're people of the desert. They get this. They get that their decisions have to be about what will keep them alive. And that's the context that we approach this story this morning. Before we get into their conversation, I want to set a little bit of the backstory that has happened to lead us up to this place. If we look in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. And we keep going and we get to John chapter 3. While they're there, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. And this is interesting because we are meant to compare this story to the story of John 4. And how do we know that? Well, what we have in John 3 is a man who has a name, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Pharisees, so he is part of the religious elect. Um, He's on the inside. And he comes, this man with a name who's part of the insiders, comes to Jesus for a one-on-one conversation about the kingdom in the middle of the night. And that happens in John 3. In John 4, we have an unnamed woman who is a member of the religiously rejected who comes to Jesus in the middle of the day. So this is very purposeful on the the writer of this gospel, John, to contrast these two and make us consider what's happening in both stories. One of the things that's happening we'll see is family disagreements. Um, A lot of times, I love this, by the way, if you Google Pharisee images, they're never, like, happy or smiling. They're always like, they always look very mad and like they're plotting something. Nobody ever painted a picture of a happy Pharisee. I promise you they were happy um, occasionally. So the Pharisees, they get a lot of bad rap when we talk about them. Um, But the truth is, when Jesus argues with them or has conversations with them, it's a family argument. Um, these are not people that he despised. These are people that he loved. They, he was of them. They were of him. They were related. So this is not, you know, I know they get painted badly, but it's just important for us to remember that it's a family fight. So it's, uh, they're, they're all related. So what we do know in this story, though, is the Pharisees are a little hot and bothered about how many people are, the disciples are baptizing. And so they're starting to murmur. And Jesus and his disciples decide it's a good time to get out of Jerusalem. And they leave and they go to where the scripture tells us they go to a place called Sychar. Um, this is a more modern picture of Sychar. But a couple of things you need to know about Sychar is that Sychar, first and foremost, was a place of layers. And what I mean is it's a place where the biblical story just gets piled one on top of the other in this physical place. Um, Sychar was either a suburb of Shechem or it was Shechem, just a different name for Shechem. Regardless, a lot of things happen at Shechem. And Shechem is 
right here in the middle of where, where they are. Um, Abram built an altar at Shechem to worship the Lord. Um, when Joshua brings the nation of Israel into the land for the first time, um, per Moses' instructions, he's told to go up on that mountain, which is Mount Gerizim, and uh, take half the tribes of Israel up onto the top of Mount Gerizim and pronounce the blessings over the nation of Israel, and the other half go up across a mountain across the way, which you can't see here, called Mount Ebal, and they declare um, what's called the curses, but it's really the warnings over the nation of Israel. Um, this is just a very significant place. When they do come out of the wandering time, the ancient Israelites, they put the tabernacle that they had worshipped in, in the desert, they put it here um, on top of Mount Gerizim. So this is where they worship. A significant place of biblical, the biblical story is layered here. And I get to use this really cool feature that I'm going to show you here. This is awesome. This is the only reason I'm... Look at this. Wow. Okay. So here's Sikar, modern Sikar, and here's modern Shechem. Um, to illustrate some of the layers, can you see this? This right here is where Joseph, the patriarch, uh, his tomb is you know, venerated to be. Um, Jacob's well, you can still visit today. You'll see a picture of that later. Is right here. And we're looking down from the top of Mount Gerizim. This is the place where Jesus comes to have this encounter. So you can see the biblical story is just really layered here. Um, in addition to being a place of layers, Sakar is also a place of controversy. And the reason it was a place of controversy is primarily because of the Samaritans. Now, we've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. We've probably heard this story about the Samaritan woman quite a bit. It's important to know who the Samaritans were, especially if we go back to that Nicodemus encounter. And, and remember that Nicodemus and the Pharisees, that that was a family argument. So was this. This was a family argument when the Samaritans and the Jews get sideways with each other. And why is that? Let me give you just a little bit of backstory. Basically, around 722 B.C., um, the Assyrians come in and conquer Israel. And they take a bunch of the Israelites away into exile. But they don't take them all. They leave some. And they, then the Assyrians, who were into conquering, that was their thing, they take some other people that they had conquered and they put them in Israel to mix with the Israelites that they left there. And so... Those Israelites that stayed and the other conquered people that got put there commingle for hundreds of years and they become Samaritans. Meanwhile, all the Jews that the Assyrians take off to exile commingle where they are. And then they eventually come back and say, we are the pure Jews. We are the pure keeper of the faith. We have kept the bloodline pure and the faith pure. They really haven't. But they make that declaration, and these people say, no, we are. We stayed. We're the, we're the true keepers of the faith. We're the true keepers of the bloodline, and they really have it. Nobody has. But they come back, and they get sideways. What's important is that they're all related. These are, these are really cousins. And I'm going to show you exactly what I'm talking about, because you're going to see how different these people are. Here's a modern-day Samaritan. And now let's put up the modern-day Jew. Wow. I mean, look how different they are. They are completely rocking different hats and uh, different beard, beard grooming techniques. That's, that's really about it, right? Okay, these people are related. But this is a place of controversy, no, no less. Um, one of the things that they fought about was that when the Jews came back, they declared Jerusalem to be the holy place where worship should happen. They built the temple, you know this. And they said that's where worship should happen. 
Well, the Samaritans who had been there all along and remembered that they brought the tabernacle out of the wilderness and put it on Mount Gerizim said, no, this is where worship should happen, up on top of Mount Gerizim. This is the holy place. Samaritans had a different translation of the Bible than the Jews did. And so they fought about all this stuff and they would not interact. And so it's important for us to see that when Jesus finds himself in Sikar, in Shechem, he finds himself in the wrong place. He's in a place where no good Jew would go. Good Jews leaving Jerusalem and trying to go to Galilee would go way around, out of the way, take extra days of their journey, weeks of their journey, to go to the east of the, of the River Jordan to avoid this place, to avoid Samaria. Let me show you on a map. This red line shows you the typical path a good Jew would take to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee. This green arrow shows you what Jesus and his disciples do. They go right at it. This is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. Jesus and his disciples purpose to go right into the middle of these layers and right in the middle of this controversy. He finds himself at the foot of Mount Gerizim, the holy place of the Samaritans, and at this well, which I have a picture of what it looks like today. This is Jacob's well today. They put a shrine over it, but you can still go there and visit it. Um, finds himself at this well. Now, you might be wondering, why does he go to the well? Why doesn't he go up on top of Mount Gerizim? I mean, if you really want to throw down the gauntlet, wouldn't that be the best place to go? The Samaritans believe, and I'm not saying they're wrong, trace their uh, ancestry through Joseph, through the, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And accordingly, Joseph's father was Jacob. Um, the tradition says that Jacob gave this land to Joseph, including this well. And so Jesus walks right up to the well of their father, Jacob, and has this encounter. There's another reason I think that we go to a well, though, and that's this biblical precedent. If you were a first century listener of this story, you would hear that Jesus goes to a well and you'd think, I know what's coming next. And the reason is right here. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant goes to a well to find a wife for Isaac. Abraham's son, and he meets Rebecca and brings her back and gives her to Isaac, and they're married. Genesis 29, Jacob, fleeing his brother Esau, stops at a well, meets his wife, Rachel. Exodus 2, Moses, fleeing Egypt, stops at a well, defends the daughters of Jethro, one of whom is Zipporah, who Moses later marries. So you see this biblical principle at work here. Go to a well, find a wife. Okay? That's what's going on. And if you're listening to this story as it unfolds in the first century and you hear Jesus is going here and he's going to a well, you're like, I know what's coming next. He's about to find a wife. And then if you're a good Jew, you're like, oh, but he's in the really wrong place to find a wife because he's in the middle of Samaria. This is not going to go good. And then he... Not only is that kind of proven true, but he gets this woman who's had six husbands. And the woman that's had six husbands, the one that she's with right now, hasn't even married her. So if you're a good Jew, listen to this story, you're really upset now. This is no candidate for marriage. Uh, Rebecca, Rachel Zipporah, these were women a good Jew would marry, right? This is like the antithesis of that. 
And so you start to get really hot and bothered. Oh, no, he can't marry this woman. Little, little clue here. He didn't go to marry one woman. He went to the well to marry a people, to marry Jews and Samaritans back together, to put the family back together. This is still a marriage. It's just a little bit bigger than two people. Everything in this story at this point is leading us up to asking questions of what's right, what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's righteous and what's not righteous. And we're getting set up for this. If you look at this, this woman, between right and wrong, she's wrong. Between good and bad, she's bad. Between righteous and unrighteous, she's unrighteous. She's on the wrong side of all of these things. I mean, how could she be expected to be on the right side when she's going up against a devout Jewish rabbi who happens to be the Messiah? I mean, she's doomed from the beginning of this encounter. I know you may laugh at this, and it's okay. But I have no problem calling myself a desert person. I have wandered in the desert for about six days. Jews wandered in the desert for 40 years, but not going to happen for me. Six days was plenty, and if you've been there, you can affirm that. I do consider myself to be a person of the desert now. And when I look at this story as a desert person, I can see what's going on. And I want to share with you a couple of the things that I see are happening in this story between desert people. I see that Jesus is shattering every barricade, every fence, and every roadblock to relationship between him and this woman, between the Jews and the Samaritans. He's asking her to take the unhelpful things out of her backpack and we all get to listen in to see if we can make this conversation about life and not about what's good or bad or righteous or unrighteous. N.T. Wright says it this way, Our surrounding culture brainwashes us and persuades us in a thousand subtle ways that the present world is the only one there is. And Jesus says, let's consider another way. Let's be about those things that bring life. Forget about those things that people think are right or wrong. Abandon your decisions about what is good or bad. Be about life. So I want to show you just real quickly a number of things that Jesus does very purposefully. The first thing is ethnicity. This Samaritan woman was born into a situation where her ethnicity made her despised by the chosen people of God. Jesus points his caravan from Jerusalem right at that and drives right into the middle of it to the holy mountain to Jacob's well and declares, your ethnicity will not keep me from being in relationship with you. When the world says that your race is a reason to terminate relationship, that's not about life. The Samaritan was also born into a situation where because she was a woman, she was less than. Jesus stomps all over that distinction as well. Your gender won't keep me from being in relationship with you. To decide that you're less than because you're a woman, that's not a decision based about life. This woman was born into a faith, the faith of the Samaritans, that was despised by the Jews. Her holy place was in the wrong place. Her translation of the Bible was wrong. She was on the wrong side of all this, but Jesus declares your religion is not going to keep me from being in relationship with you. Those distinctions of religious correctedness, correctness, sorry, those aren't about life. This woman was also held apart from others by social convention. 
What do I mean by that? At this time, for Samaritan or a Jew, it was deemed inappropriate for a man to speak to a woman in public. Even a husband was supposed to wait until they were behind closed doors to talk to his wife. This is scandalous behavior on the part of Jesus to talk to a woman in public that he doesn't know. And not only does he talk to her, he says, can I share your water jug? Even though this is scandalous behavior, Jesus says, I'm going to push into this relationship. Now, these first four things, ethnicity, gender, religion, social convention, these are things that were put on the woman. She didn't do these to herself. They were done to her. These were fences that were put around her to separate her. And I have to look at this and own this because if I'm a follower of Yeshua, he's my rabbi, that means I want to be like him. And if Yeshua is not going to let ethnicity, gender, religion, or social convention stand in the way of relationship, then neither can I. I cannot justify decisions about relationship based on these things because that's not about life. But he doesn't stop there. He also moves to the barricades that she has put around herself. In verse 9, we see that she didn't expect for Jesus to speak to her. She's brought expectations into this encounter, and Jesus says, our relationship is not going to be governed by your expectations. I identify with this big time. I bring all kinds of expectations into my relationship with Jesus, and thank God he never uses them to define our relationship. He pushes through them every time. Even when I have good expectations, they're never good enough. Even when I dream big, I never dream big enough. God always pushes through. We also see in verses throughout this scripture that she's not very receptive. She keeps Jesus at arm's length. And why wouldn't she? He's not only a Jew, he's a man. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for her not to receive him. But Jesus says, even if you don't receive me, I'm still going to push into relationship. I'm not going to let your receptivity define our relationship. Verse 17, the woman lies about her marital status. I think this is an important for, for those of us that wrestle with shame. Now, I need you to understand, Jesus does not get hung up on the fact that she's had five husbands. Does not get hung up on the fact that she's living with a man that she's currently not married to. That's social convention. Jesus has already laid social convention aside and said that has no place here. That's not going to decide whether we're in a relationship. But she lies. She says, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. It's like a half, half-truth lie, you know. She doesn't give all the details so that she looks better. Jesus calls her on that. But he does not condemn her. And he does not use it to determine whether or not they're going to be in relationship. And the same is true for us. When we make mistakes, when we blow it, we might get called on it. But it's never going to be used to determine whether or not we're worthy of relationship. We are. And Jesus pushes through this and says, even when you're going to do wrong things, I'm still going to be in relationship with you. And then there's the last one. This is the big one. Her distance. We see this in verse 22. He makes this really weird statement. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know. This is about the distance that we put between ourselves and God? Do we just worship God because He's God? Or are we in a real relationship? And Jesus says, 
you don't even know the person, the being that you're worshiping. Here I am. I'm right here. Even the fact that you don't know me is not going to keep me from being in relationship with you. The wise rabbi Chris Estes says it this way. You don't have to know God to get to know God. And we just need to remember that. There's no prerequisite to this relationship. And that's what Jesus tells her. Now, friends, we've spent this summer listening, hopefully, to these biblical stories and trying to examine how these biblical characters hear from God, how God speaks to them. And I, I hope that you can hear this morning what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman, what he's saying to us. I think he's saying that none of these things are going to keep us from being in a relationship. I think he's saying, you're far away from me. I am coming to you. He says, the world says you're unacceptable. I am chooses you. Your circumstances make our relationship seem impossible. I am moves moves past your circumstances to you. You don't expect me to come, and when I get there, you have problems receiving me. I am comes to you anyway. You try to cover your shame with more lies and bad decisions. I am comes to the real you. You have no idea who I am. Here I am. Now, our natural response to that is going to be just like the Samaritan woman. Why? Why would Jesus come to us? Why do we deserve such compassion and love and mercy? And friends, you know the answer. It's because just like her, we are all a beloved daughter or a beloved son of the Most High God. I want you to hear how this story ends up. It's a little past John 4. It's a little past our scripture this morning. But I think it's important. John 4.28 says this. The woman went back to the town, leaving her water pot behind. She stopped men and women on the streets and told them about what had happened. You catch that? A desert person left her water jug. This is not an insignificant detail. Water is life and death. She leaves the well not only without water, she leaves the well without the ability to carry water in the future. She drops her jug. What in the world could she be carrying back with her that is so important that she stopped thinking about how to survive with water? A little further on, we read John 4.39. It says this, Because one woman shared with her neighbors how Jesus exposed her past and her present, the village of Sikar was transformed and many Samaritans heard and believed. You are a child of the king. You are of a royal bloodline. You are the delight of God's life and the joy of God's heart. And even if the world thinks otherwise, even if you yourself can't see it, you matter. And so Jesus comes. He comes straight for you. He comes right in the middle of your layers, right in the middle of your controversy. And He comes for you. And with Him, He brings life.